So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me down the line this week, we have author and commentator Paul Embry. Hi. And in the studio this week, we have Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the Gary Lineker affair, the false accusations of Eleanor Williams, the UK budget, and the mad plan in San Francisco for racial reparations. So the Gary Lineker scandal, the Gary Lineker clash with the BBC has been one of the biggest news stories in the past week in in Britain. Really, to recap, it started with uh, Gary Lineker sending a tweet comparing the UK government's immigration rhetoric to 1930s Germany. For this potential breach of impartiality, he was stepped down from Match of the Day. He was suspended. But he's been reinstated this week, and the BBC has agreed to review its social media guidelines. Paul, sometimes when I've been looking at the coverage of this story, I feel like I'm going a bit mad. I mean, all of a sudden you have all these kind of metropolitan elite liberals saying how much they love free speech. They're standing in solidarity with Gary Lineker as if he's some kind of Rosa Parks civil rights figure just because he's been stepped down um, from a sports program, essentially. I mean, isn't this row really about BBC impartiality, impartiality? who it applies to, and whether the BBC can enforce it in the social media age. Isn't that the issue here, not free speech? I think the row is largely confected, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's been really interesting to see, you know, as you said, all of the kind of metro libs suddenly taking to the barricades in favour of free speech when these are the, the same people who largely have kept their heads down over recent years when free speech really has, in many respects, been been under quite a serious attack. Um, and what what kind of grates with me really is it's only when, in their eyes, a fashionable cause and a celebrity mm. person um, come along uh, and are suddenly, I mean, Gary Lineker wasn't even cancelled. He was just asked to step aside so that they could clarify the rules. Um, but, you know, people were talking as if he'd been cancelled and all of a sudden they're willing to throw to throw their weight behind him. But what annoys me is... It's when the little people get cancelled who don't have yeah. the status of Gary Lineker, um, who don't have the reach of Gary Lineker. Um, where are those people who are currently defending Gary Lineker when it's the other, it's the small people, the little people who come under attack? And I think of the likes, for example, of Simon Isherwood, the, the driver on West Midlands trains, who, are, who, who was disciplined um, by... Uh, his employer, because when he was taking part in some sort of Zoom webinar over white privilege, said, I wonder if they have black privilege lessons in Africa. <laughs> um, and his mic was sort of accidentally left on. And that was in the privacy of his own home yeah. during a break in yeah. the webinar. Um, and the trade union movement and the left 
Um, and all of these people now who want to take to the barricades in defence of free speech ran a million miles from the likes of Simon Isherwood, apart from, to its credit, the, the Free Speech Union who, who defended him, or the likes of Maureen Morgan, who stood as a candidate um, in the mayoral election in the London borough of Lewisham last year, I think it was, um, and put out a leaflet saying all the normal stuff about bing elections and whatever you'd expect in a local election, but just stood for the Christian People's Alliance and just happened to say, that she believed in the traditional view of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, fine, disagree with her. You don't have to agree with her on that. But she was sacked by the housing association that she worked for because of that particular view. And again, these free speech, you know, the new free speech warriors didn't come near nor by. They weren't interested in the likes of Maureen Morgan. Um, so, so there does seem to be a bit of a discrepancy, I think, between their support for Gary Lineker and their support for others who are arguably much more deserving. And I do think there's a genuine question over, you know, Gary Lineker's activities. I mean, I certainly don't think he deserves to be sacked. Um, of course he doesn't. But I think there is a question to be raised over the fact that the BBC is required as a national broadcaster by charter to, to be impartial politically, particularly on contentious and contemporary political issues. And if you have a situation where someone who is clearly a recognisable face within the BBC, a major face within the BBC, is not demonstrating that partiality, um, does the BBC have a right to intervene? I mean, there's certainly a case, I think, for anyone in news and current affairs. For me, I think it's a no-brainer. If you're in news and current affairs at the BBC, then you shouldn't get involved overtly in a political sense. But at the same time, you know, do you want someone who's working on songs of praise, for example, to be told you must never express a political opinion in public? That seems to me to be over the top. So I think there's a balance to be struck. And these are complex questions. But the hypocrisy of, of those who are rallying to Lineker's defence now really, I think, is pretty breathtaking. Yeah, I think that's right. And it is, it is important to emphasise, you know, none of us here would want Lineker to be sacked or punished or, you know, perhaps even being suspended was a bit far you could even say. Um, but there are, you know, the BBC does have uh, impartiality duty. Perhaps the issue is that we know a lot of people at the BBC um, in current affairs, in the sports um, department, in entertainment, whatever it might be, hold similar views to Lineker and would like to be able to express them or would like to almost want the BBC to only reflect those views. In, in a sense, this was a very cack-handed attempt at restoring some kind of balance that maybe has gone a bit wrong. Yeah, it was also made the BBC look like fools because they take this action, which you know, I agree with Paul to most people, you think, oh, you know, like give him a slap on the wrist behind closed doors mm. and sort of, you know, do, don't... Remind don't, him of the guidelines yeah, or don't, something like Yeah, don't that. make yeah. this whole big deal out of it. But then to have to, after, you know, strike action was taken, I mean, <laughs> ridiculous, um, by you know, Alan Shearer and Ian Wright and all his um, sort of colleagues. And then the BBC has to come back and grovel, mm. you know, and then it spirals into this bigger discussion about the chair and about impartiality of the BBC more broadly, which actually I think is an interesting conversation because... I say this as a great fan of the BBC. Um, the idea that there is sort of pure impartiality there is a nonsense. Um, you just have to look at, for example, the way in which people who, not even just presenters, but mm. people who work at the BBC, people who, you know, producers, researchers, all of them have to go through um, equality and diversity training. All of them have to go through 
um, things related to sort of gender ideology and that kind of thing. That's not impartial. Mm. You know, if you watch, as I do when I'm bored with the baby you know, early in the morning, country file, yeah. that's not impartial. It's like hitting you over the head with sort of climate change awareness <laughs> and all the rest of it. There's lots of stuff in the BBC that is not impartial, but it's just the kind of partiality bias that's okay. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting point to be made about the fact that if we, you know, if we had a situation in which we could trust people to be, to have their biases, but put them to one side in their professional lives, you know, to understand that actually probably most people who are public figures do have an opinion on whether it's the small boats thing or mm. the government of the day or whatever it is, but that they, in the course of their professional life on screen and where they have power um, as a presenter, particularly, you know, in the, in the sort of uh, news and current affairs shows, will completely put that to one side and act as if they are genuinely impartial. But I think part of the problem at the moment is that it's quite clear that a lot of people who are high up in the BBC can't do that. So yeah. their cover of, coverage of Brexit, for example, was, you know, they might have they might have said impartial words, but the kind of dripping contempt in their voices <laughs> as they said them revealed their biases in, in terms of that, the ways in which they've conducted interviews on certain issues like gen, the kind of gender wars and things like that. But also the fact that so many of them are now leaving, you know, Andrew, Ma, Emily Maitlis, yeah. who just can't wait to, okay, maybe go somewhere for even more money, but also just can't wait to go somewhere so that they can sound off and the things that they sound off about are always kind of liberal biases. So It's, it's not as if Emily Maitlis's opinions were very well hidden no. <laughs> when she was on Newsnight. Exactly. Know? So I think it's, you know, I would always bend the stick in, in the kind of Gary Lineker affair um, I think it's a good time to try and shame the sort of new free speech warriors and say, okay, this is a free speech issue. Come join us. And then when the next person gets banned from um, a job that is, you know, not not earning the kind of six figure sums that Gary yeah. Lineker is, um, then we should call their bluff and say, well, here you are. Here's another case. Come join us. Um, I think we should bend the stick in favor of free speech. But it is, you know, like you say, Fraser, it is a bit rich that you have Gary Lineker now is the kind of hero um, of liberty and against cancel culture. The most one of the sort of richest, sort of most elite men <laughs> in in the country, and and who you know is it seems free to carry on spouting his opinion. Um, yeah, couldn't who, help himself. Who, 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 also, in yeah. his sort of in his apologies, sort of said, yes, yes, yes. But also, but think about the people who can't, you know, who don't go through this on small boats, and you think, oh, just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Let's. What happens next time a, a kid scuffs a Quran? What happens next mm. time um, a female MP um, expresses gender critical views? I mean, Paul, it was noticeable that Keir Starmer um, intervened in this row as well in in PMQs this week, um, accusing the Tory side of being a bunch of snowflakes. Now, partly this was because. 20 of them wrote this ridiculous letter calling on um, the BBC to stand firm against Gary Lineker. They shouldn't have done that. That was that was stupid. But isn't there an irony there where you have someone like Keir Starmer who posing again as a f fake free speech champion? Yeah, exactly. As I said, it was a fashionable cause um, being promoted by someone who twi on Twitter who's got millions of followers and, and is a big celebrity. So... Uh, Starmer obviously felt it was a free kick. Um, he obviously wanted to, to hitch his wagons to the Lineker crusade. You know, when you're prepared to defend Rosie Duffield in your own party, who comes under sustained attack, really aggressive attack, sometimes from Labour MPs themselves, simply for stating biological truths, um, then perhaps we should start listening. When you stand up for, as you touched on, the, the kid in Wakefield, um, 
who allegedly scuffed the Quran and his mother um, was was forced to sit in front of a, of a meeting um, and clearly fearful about the consequences. And, you know, the police senior police officer was also there. And instead of taking on people who think it's acceptable to, to you know, use aggression and threats of violence against people and saying, actually, we're not going to stand for this. You've got absolutely no right to get away with that. Um, just completely capitulate. What has Starmer said about the Batley school teacher yeah. who remains in hiding to this day? Absolutely nothing. So so when it comes to the likes of, of Starmer and the comments on Lineker, I take them with a pinch of salt. And, and you know, it's because most people, let's be blunt, in, in my view, most people on the left are privately open borders, even though they don't say that publicly. Um, because they know it's not electorally popular. Um, but most of them, frankly, I think, uh, are open borders. So when they see the likes of Gary Lineker arguing for the position that he does, they're very, very comfortable, um, even though what he said, frankly, was crass. Um, and you know, Yeah, I, d- I just want to pick up on that, Paul. Yeah, I mean, you know, comparing everything to Nazis, and it's it's gone even wilder in recent weeks as people have tried to defend Gary Lineker, that people have given all kinds of more justifications as to you know, why the government is fascist, why the BBC is fascist because they cancelled the BBC singers um, to, you know, yeah. make up budget cuts. What do you, I mean, what do you make of that kind of degradation of language? It's so unhealthy, isn't it? Just, I mean, it's just, it's tedious as much as anything and it's and it's lazy um, and it's not serious debate. I mean, the, the, the whole kind of term far right and the term fascist, these, these terms, I think, are now being completely stripped of any historical meaning. Um, so that actually they're they're becoming meaningless, and this is something you know. I think that's that's been occurring now for the last few years and is intensifying. Um, I mean, I, I I wrote in in my book an example in 2019 when the general election was called, and Dawn Butler, who was a front bencher for for Labour, obviously a Labour MP. Uh, said this election was was about stopping a, a far right government. Um, now you know when people once upon a time when people used the term far right, they thought of Nazis and skinheads and people in bomber jackets mm. and Doc Martins and marching through areas where there's high high populations of, of people from ethnic minorities. Now it you know it means people, for example, who who support Boris Johnson or people who vote for Brexit or people who fly the St George's flag or in America people who support Trump. Um, and it's it's just devalued, actually. Definitely. And Ella, just finally, you know, is is there a problem that, you know, however we got here, you know, we didn't want Gary Lynn to be suspended or sacked or anything, but where we're, where we're at now, it's as if that tendency within the BBC, within the media, that shrill, liberal, kind of uh, elitist faction, they feel emboldened by this. They feel in the ascendance. They feel that now it's their BBC. Is Is that a problem, do you think? Yes, it is a problem because I really want to hold on to the idea of of there being an impartial um, broadcaster. You know, the, I think that whatever criticisms of the BBC, many people, myself included, still do go to it to find out what's happening in different parts of the world, what's happening in terms of um, breaking news, and it's an important resource. And you know, there, I think, too much of the time now, the BBC, and this is sort of a, a a more general trend with journalism, um, they are interested in what they think they should be saying and what kind of message they think is responsible to give to a public mm. rather than sticking to facts, what is happening, analysing a particular situation and genuinely giving you know an even um, 
representation of a particular, you know, discussion. I mean, the, you know, it's things like newspapers and broadcasters deciding to use the word climate emergency instead of climate change. You know, the BBC deciding to use she, her pronouns for trans women. You know, mm. all these things are political decisions based on what the what a broadcaster thinks that sh- should be said, not what's actually a genuine reflection of the world yeah. right there and then. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the Gary Lineker kind of case is a sort of, you know, whatever about, um, you know, the sort of technicalities of it. The more interesting thing is, is this, is there a deeper problem within the BBC of there being, you know, I don't want to use the word capture because that really does make you sound like a far right <laughs> person. But, you know, there's a the kind of... A, a, of a, a tendency a tendency or a climate in the bbc yeah. in which they are going to miss important things and i think you know there's a it's it's actually we kind of have to have a sort of a, a more behind the scenes discussion of what is actually going on with the bbc's mo and does it need to change on a kind of more fundamental level so earlier this week eleanor williams a 22 year old from barrow in furness was sentenced to 8 years in prison for essentially multiple false allegations of rape and sexual assault. Ella, I mean, you can tell us a little bit more about some of the details, but um, what was most striking was that she not only accused multiple men, she also made up the fact that she'd been a victim of an Asian grooming gang. Mm -hmm. She said she'd been kidnapped and raped, and she posted pictures on her Facebook of her being bloodied and bruised that she had actually caused herself. She bought a hammer and Mm -hmm. hit herself with it. Now, this is obviously a really extreme case, and she is clearly a very disturbed individual. But is there a broader lesson to take from this? Especially, you know, in the past couple of years, we've been we've we're always told that the lesson of Me Too is um, believe all women, mm-hmm. and in this case, that has led to a severe suffering on behalf of four men, two of them quite young, mm. um, one of them who was kept from his family after being um, on remand with the police for four months. Some of those men tried to take their own lives. They had rapists sprayed on their house. Um, actually, you know, the community in Barrow and Furness kind of went mad. You know, there were reports from, you know, in local newspapers about how just fraught the tension was between people, um, that there were these kind of pop-up protests. You had the likes of Tommy Robinson turn up mm. with his gang of merry kind of documentary makers trying to stir up some kind of, or, you know, talk to people about the idea of this, you know, obsessed with grooming gangs. And um, interest, sort of interestingly, a lot of this took place um, across the kind of uh, beginnings of the um, COVID pandemic. So she actually made the allegations in 2017 and onwards, but the sort of, that there were sort of two stages to it. There was her making the allegations. And then after in 2020, the police found that there wasn't any evidence mm that's when things almost started to get worse because it's sort of the just uh, Justice for Ellie campaign began, which was shared by Rachel Riley of Countdown, um, Holly Hagen, who's a reality TV show uh, star, and Maggie Oliver, who was um, you know a former um, police officer who was really involved in and did some very important work in revealing um, some of the failures in the police's rep- approach to the Rochdale grooming um, scan, grooming gang scandal, for example. So basically lots of people bought this. Yeah. And it went really big on social media and it really screwed up a community. And the police seemed to have, um, uh, you know, acted in a way in which they did just believe her and put these men through some very, you know, from some very hard times. 
And, you know, no one uh, seems to want to talk about the fact that if you treat women like angels yeah. and if you say no woman ever lies, and, you know, it's important to say that the vast majority of women who turn up with rape accusations are not lying. Yeah, and you know, is, this, is, is this an extreme case? Yeah, it is an extreme case. But, you know, one person going to jail wrongly is a big, big deal. Yeah. That's a very big deal. That's a very big failure of justice. And if we believe in... Um, making the process of you know getting justice better, mm. both for you know victims of domestic abuse or women, but also people who have false allegations against them, we have to really cement our belief in the idea of innocent until proven guilty and due process and the proper stages of of an investigation. Um, and it seems to have really failed in this. I suppose you can say there's a current climate around. You know, there's a lot of distrust in the police yeah. and their response to the grooming gang scandal, being scared of basically being called. Racist of their sort of um, mishandling of lots of things that are going on at the moment in terms of some pretty nasty views about women in the police, the whole Wayne Cousins affair with Sarah Everard. You know, this is not going to instill more trust in the police. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And Paul, do you think we have kind of fallen out of, um, not love, but do you think we, the idea of due process, do you think that's kind of fallen out of favor in recent times? It feels we're, we're very quick to jump the gun on, on a lot of accusations. Well, I, I always remember the case of Dave Jones, the Premier League football manager, about 20 years ago. He was the manager of Southampton at the time. Um, and after he retired as a player, because he was a professional player, and then there was a period where he was not involved in the game and he was working for... Um, working in care homes on Merseyside. And then he got back into the game and became a manager. Um, when he was a top manager in the Premier League, all of a sudden, a number of um, people who were formerly um, children in the care homes were now adults, um, made accusations against him of sexual abuse. And Dave Jones kind of suddenly turned into a non-person. He was suspended from his job um, and there was a long kind of police investigation and he was charged and it came to court. And the case absolutely collapsed when it mm. got to court. And it turned out that all of the alleged victims uh, had actually conspired um, to, to blacken his name, to get a conviction against him um, for their own kind of nefarious reasons. And he walked free. Um, and quite rightly, because he was an innocent man. But I remember at the time, and I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm involved in football and I'm a big football fan. I remember everybody saying at the time, well, no smoke without fire. Yeah. You know, this guy must be, must be guilty. You would not get five, six, seven um, complainants, whatever it was at the time, um, you know, all kind of colluding. There must be something in it. And it turns out there was absolutely nothing in it. Um, and, and as I said, the case fell apart. And I think that always struck me at the time, and it always has done ever since, that no matter how compelling the evidence might seem against somebody, no matter how overwhelming um, the evidence might seem, might seem, until due process has taken place and until that person has had the right to put his or her defence in front of a court of law, you should never ever in any circumstances assume that they are guilty. So the, the presumption of innocence is one of the foundation stones, I think, of our civilization. but it's a foundation stone that I do think is being slowly eroded. I think the default yeah. position now for many people is there's an allegation that's been made we must believe the complainant um, and we must accept that the complainant is telling the truth. And therefore, if we need to punish the alleged offender even before due process has taken place, then that's what we're going to do. The, the Tory MP recently, and forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he was accused of 
Um, he was accused of inappropriate behaviour at the Tory conference towards the end of last year. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was um, Connor Burns. Uh, you know, with with a, with a young male in 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 a bar late one evening at conference. Um, and someone made a complaint about him, and he was sacked from the front bench by Liz Truss, I think was the PM at the time, for that short period. <laughs> um, and he was sacked from the front bench and immediately said, I'm not guilty of this. And it turns out that the person he was with had completely consented to the, the behaviour. Um, but by then, by the time a few months later that it was found he hadn't done anything wrong, frankly, his front bench career and reputation had been destroyed. Yeah. And I think that's the, the kind of thing that we need to be really careful of. And, you know, the... When, when Her Majesty's um, Inspectorate of Constabulary said, and it's on the record in 2014, a, a victim, when it comes to complaints about sexual abuse and so on, the, the, the presumption that the victim should be believed, should be institutionalised, that, that's what yeah. the inspectorate said. I think it created a whole raft of problems because I think from that, and we saw that with the Cole Beach affair and, and yeah. other sorts of affairs where the police just instinctively say, you will be believed. Now, I think that's entirely the wrong approach. The police have got to be impartial. The, yes, absolutely, the police should investigate and investigate with compassion and sensitivity where someone makes serious allegations of, of sexual abuse. But actually, you don't automatically believe the complainant. You see where the evidence takes you. If there's a case to answer, it goes before the court and we let a jury decide. And it seems to me that actually those those were principles that once upon a time the vast majority of this country believed, but now seem to be slipping away from us. And I always say to people, look, it's fine until you're the person who's been accused. When you're when you're the person who's been accused, you might suddenly find how important the presumption of innocence is, how important due process is, how important the right to put your defence and have a fair hearing is. Um, and we need to we need to push back on it because I think it is a serious serious threat. So this week, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, gave his maiden budget. It, of course, comes in the context of a year of extremely high inflation, many more years of sluggish growth. Um, we've had the energy crisis. And even this week or last week, we saw the collapse of a US bank, the Silicon Valley Bank. Credit Suisse is having a few wobbles. So in that kind of context, Ella, I mean, did you feel reassured by anything the Chancellor said? Do you know, I was thinking, how can I say something original about this? Because it feels like every single time we discuss a budget announcement on the Spike podcast, we say it's just tinkering. But it is just tinkering. I mean, this was even worse. This was this was a new a new level of tinkering. Yeah, yeah. and there there is really nothing substantial in here. Um, and that's very depressing. A really good example is the childcare thing. Obviously, something I'm quite interested in at the moment. You have this announcement of 33 hours for a younger age, um, ones and twos. And you think, you know, my husband came home and was like, this is great. You know, and we th you think it's great. And then you look into it and you see not only it's not going to be rolled out for a number of years, but there's not going to be any, uh, uh, sort of a any way kind of uh, substantial or um, beneficial funding increase for those childcare places for nurseries. One of the big problems with childcare at the moment is that the costs are astronomical and that nurseries can't cover the funding. Yeah. So so it doesn't fix anything, really. It's a sticking plaster. It's kind of a top-line policy announcement, but it doesn't address the bigger issue. And obviously, all of these sort of little um, sticking plasters you know, can't cover up the fact that the big issue for all of, we just mentioned Liz Truss, for all of Liz Truss's failings, mm. at least rhetorically she had the right idea in yeah. her use of the G word, growth. And there is very little still from this government in terms of a commitment to genuine economic growth. 
I mean, the Office for Budget Responsibility, not that we're fans of them on this uh, podcast mm-hmm. or any of these kind of, um, you know, quasi-governmental bodies, but they said that the budget was going to lead to lower growth, which I thought was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And, and Hunt tried to bill it as this budget for growth, which I think everyone has seen through. Um, I mean, Paul, what have you what have you made of it? I mean, it's just, you know, particularly um, I'm interested in what you think about Hunt because he has presented himself as this very sort of steady-as-you-go technocratic bloodless figure i mean that's kind of not the approach we need right now if you if you know what i mean well when we're in such a hole the technocrats are trying to wrest back control of the ship aren't they um, yeah post kind of brexit um that's the that's the plan and arguably they've succeeded to a certain degree i mean look when it comes to the economy i'm a i'm a good old-fashioned lefty i make no apologies about that and i i think there's um i'm not a fan of what what Hunt delivered in his budget. Um, I think there's something fundamentally sick about our economy. I think that the kind of grotesque wealth and income inequality uh, is getting worse, if anything. I don't think the government has got any ideas about how to how to close that. Um, some people did very nicely out of the pandemic. Um, we've seen over the last couple of years, executive pay surge. We've seen city bonuses increase quite handsomely. We've seen some of our corporations registering record profits. Um, and at the same time, people at the other end of the scale are increasingly finding it difficult to make ends meet, to pay their mortgages, to pay their energy bills, to f- put food on the table in some cases. And I don't think this this budget really addresses any of that. I mean, we're seeing in this country the biggest squeeze on workers' wages since Napoleonic times. Um, we're seeing falling real wages. And at a time, I think, when the economy is sluggish, um, as Ella touched on, you know, where where is the growth going to come from? It's not going to it's not going to come if you keep presiding over falling real wages. I mean, more more widely, I don't think the government has got much idea about you know rebalancing the economy in favour of the, the the real economy, the productive sector, over its obsession with financial services. I don't think it's got much idea in terms of you know improving productivity and and. Yeah increasing investment and competitiveness and and that sort of thing. The only thing I took solace in is I think he announced something like £63 million to help sports centres heat their swimming pools with the rising energy bills. And I go swimming quite a lot and it's blimmin' freezing because they've turned the heating off. Um, So that's the only thing I'll give him credit for. He's going to make the swimming pool a bit warmer. But other than that, it's a thumbs down from me. It's it's the small things. Take, take, uh, give him a gift where you can, I guess. Uh, Ella. All mercy. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, you know, I think also there is a problem with the way in which we think, the way in which we sort of talk about what makes a good life in this country. And Paul touched on it in terms of, you know, in terms of the, the people's quality of life, it's mm. most definitely sinking. There was an announcement today that um, from some other kind of statistician that life expectancy in this country is you know, falling. Yeah. That it's a little like in terms of Europe, it's sort of one of the um, lowest, or so certainly pretty bad. And the discussion across so many um, radio stations um, this morning was all kind of public health figures scratching their chin, saying, mm, "You know, what should we do about smoking in this country? You know, what, what should we do about?" <laughs> obesity and no one very few people at least said do you think maybe it's because people are you know are having a shit time because they are not haven't got enough money or enough time yeah and their lives aren't very good at the moment that's you know? the big guarantor of health isn't it wealth is, yeah. it's not very complicated and i think we've the, the kind of a thing to always remember in terms of these budget announcements is that 
there's discussion if it's even, you know, at the very basic level, it's all about just sort of getting by. There is no aspirational thinking in terms of this. And you don't have, you know, either with the Conservatives or with the Labour Party, any kind of sense of an aspiration to make people's lives not just good, but better and better and better to increase people's leisure time, to, you know, get people to be able to go on holidays, to eat nice food, all these things that make a good life that, you know, actually a lot of people in politics have. Um, there's no aspiration for that. Can I just yeah. come in on that, exactly yeah. that point that, that Ella's mentioned in there in terms of, and it's a crucial point in terms of the the good life and work-life balance and having, you know, sufficient leisure time available to you. I, I a little while ago, floated the idea of, I argued that the trade union movement should start campaigning for a family wage over yeah. a living wage. And what I meant by that is we should try to reorder the economy in such a way um, that actually families can survive and have a decent life on the wages of one earner rather than both parents, in many cases, being forced by financial imperative to go out to work. Um, now, I didn't say, and I would never say that, that it should be the man who worked. I mean, I'd be very happy in my own personal circumstances if my wife wanted to go out and do the work and I was at home, I'd be perfectly happy with that. Um, but it's simply about trying to deliver a better, fairer economy where, where people had better work-life balance, time to spend with their children and so on. And I was absolutely hammered by comrades on the left who thought it was yeah. just a terrible idea campaigning for a family wage. No, you, want, you want to put women back in the kitchen, it. Paul? Isn't that what they're saying? <laughs> they, they said, yeah, effectively, they said this was about, you know, tying women to the kitchen sink and, and that kind of stuff. And even even the TUC's head of comms attacked me on Twitter for, for arguing for a family wage. So, so actually, they would rather an economy whereby both parents, where there are two parents, are forced by financial imperative to go out and work rather than having an economy where you at least have the choice and you can say, well, yeah. if we want a decent life on the wages of one earner, we can afford that. But um, so, so that's kind of what we're up against in terms of that debate at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 choice, the, the choice to be able to afford childcare or to not need to afford childcare. I mean, that seems, that seems fairly, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's amazing that someone would argue with that. But you're right. I think, I think Ella, it comes down to what you're talking about. It's the, the positive ambition. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we saw on display with Jeremy Hunt. Finally, let's um, talk quickly about uh, San Francisco's utterly insane plan for uh, racial reparations. So this idea has been proposed by an official city-approved reparations committee. Um, it's saying that every black resident who's eligible should be given $5 million each. Mm. They should also have a guaranteed income of $97,000 for the next 250 years. They should be allowed to buy a home in San Francisco, one of the most expensive places on earth for property, for a dollar. And all of their debts should be wiped and they should never have to pay taxes again. Simply, it seems, for being black and meeting some kind of extra criteria. Paul, <laughs> what do you make of this? Is this, um, is this really a sensible way to go about addressing um, racial disparities? Well, it was, it was one of those stories that, you know, you sometimes read a story which seems so kind of, outlandish and far-fetched that you you check the date of the newspaper to see if it's the 1st of April because you think, <laughs> hold on a second, this, this must be a spoof. And I sort of read this and thought it must be a spoof and then quickly realised that that it wasn't. Um, 
And it's, I mean, it's clearly an absolutely crackpot idea. And I don't think people who peddle this sort of stuff know ultimately how divisive it is. I mean, mm. they, they think it's kind of inclusive and unifying. And I tend to think that it's the complete opposite, really. And you just kind of think, where, where does it end? You know, it, since the dawn of humanity, history tells us that, you know, groups have always pushed certain other groups off of their land. Um, now, it's not right, but it has always happened. And if you're talking about reparations um, where it's happened, or if you're talking about, you know, historical crimes such as slavery, um, lots of other people's ancestors suffered historical crimes as well. Where does all of that stuff end? And it seems to me that, that it doesn't really end anywhere. And, I, you know, I'm not aware that there are any kind of slave owners in today's San Francisco, and I'm not sure that there's any kind of slaves in the way that you would normally consider slaves to be in today's San Francisco. So I'm not sure why it would be right to expect modern-day residents of San Francisco um, to kind of cough up for this. And, and you know, it, if and the arg- I think the argument that they're using is, as well, as a result of what happened with historical slavery, black people today still suffer and, you know, they suffer from more chance of ending up in poverty and poor health care and incarceration and, and that kind of thing. But actually, you know, we could all we could all use that argument when it comes to socioeconomic status. There are yeah. millions of people across the world today who are in their position in a sort of socioeconomic um, way because of their ancestors, because their ancestors grew up in poverty. I mean, my my four grandparents grew up in the East End of London and, and really didn't have very much at all. And I don't doubt that, you know, the socioeconomic status uh, that applied to me when I was growing up was directly a result of, of you know, my grandparents and, and their ancestors. But the idea that I would seek some sort of compensation for that now um, just seems to me to be bizarre. And I, I just think with this stuff, Fraser, it's almost like we're we're on a bit of a never-ending treadmill where some people are so kind of desperate to flaunt their progressive credentials that they're just constantly looking for the next thing. And once they achieve that, it's the next thing. And obviously, by definition, when you do that, the next thing becomes more and more radical and more and more extreme. And I think that's the kind of nonsense that we're getting into with this, to be blunt. Ella, what do you think you'd make of this if you were, you know, maybe white working class in San Francisco? Maybe you're an Asian American, Latino American, and all of a sudden you're having to pay for... We don't know how many people it, it could apply to. It might be just 20 people that they can connect to slaves. There are some suggestions that the criteria could be extremely broad as well. One recommendation is that anyone who has an ancestor who is incarcerated in the war on drugs could qualify. It's not yet been um, exactly decided, but it's just very divisive, isn't it? You know, It is very divisive. And if you're interested in, as I think people should be, trying to rectify um you know racism that still exists in america or try to get better relations between different communities or whatever this is not the way to do it it's clearly not the way to do it um and there is a you know we know that a lot of the tension in terms of american um sort of culture war politics is because of a sort of really cack-handed um almost kind of like bending over backwards to try and seem sort of woke or liberal approach from lots of and, sort of and racialists. Yes. And, and, but you know, there's, I think there is an interest, we covered this at the Battle of Ideas Festival last year. There is the question of reparations. There's an interesting history in America, which is worth noting that, you know, they have paid out reparations to groups of people over the years. Lyndon B. Johnson made this kind of speech at one time saying, 
you know, you don't um, you, you don't hold a man back at the start of a of you know for, for years and years and years, and then put him um, at the in a race with other people and say, "Go on, you've got a fair crack at the whip." So you can you can sort of be sympathetic to say, I, "There is a conversation to be had here," but the solution is is not reparations. Not only because it's practically ridiculous. Um, and, you know, there's no way that it could work in a sort of even on a basic kind of technical level. But also, I think what Paul touched on is that one of the things that is most corrosive to politics at the moment is that as a kind of a victim narrative in which people, rather than seeking to change the situation or the politics of the current moment, look to the past mm-hmm. and try and find all the answers in the past, it's a very lazy way of looking at it. I mean, I could say, you know, all my ancestors were murdered by Oliver Cromwell's got a statue in front of Parliament. You know, pay me, you know. And We're, and, we're in danger of doing the four Yorkshiremen routine exactly, here, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah. It, could, it could just, it, it can, it can go on and on and on. And there is no future of a genuine progressive politics in that kind of outlook. So while this is a kind of a ridiculous thing and I, you know, let's wait and see, but I mean, a fair play to, to anyone who's black in San Francisco and gets it, you know, millions of pounds, you know, I take my hat <laughs> off to you. Maybe you can, you know, donate to Spike or something, but there is a, you know, aside from this, I think there is a growing kind of discussion about the way in which we approach history and the way in which we approach the past, which is more often than not is pretty childish. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.